Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have to spend with you and to listen to you. And I pray that you would speak to each of us um, and that you would use your word as the means to invite us to spend more time with you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So our passage that Nikki read was from Revelation 3 to the church in Laodicea. Um, I want to step back and think for a second about our movies that we love, American movies. They tend to have iconic characters that are very, very independent, independent in spirit and very, very resourceful. They overcome their circumstances by the force of their wills and their sheer ingenuity. They could be on the frontier, they could be on the battlefield, there's always adverse circumstances, but they somehow overcome them um, by their self-reliant and determined approach to life. So think about Stallone's Rocky Balboa, um, Daniel Day-Lewis's Hawkeye in The Last of the Mohicans, um, Clint Eastwood's The Man with No Name in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, one of my favorite um, westerns, Winona Ryder's Joe March in Little Women. Now, even when American actors are playing characters from other places and other time periods, they still seem to have these qualities. So William Wallace um, in Braveheart, Mel Gibson plays him. Russell Crowe's Maximus in The Gladiator. Kira Knightley's Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, and of course, Harrison Ford's iconic Han Solo in the Star Wars um, franchise. However, sometimes this individualism and uh, really, really stubborn self-reliance gets some of these characters into a mess. Think about Al Pacino's some of his greatest roles, um, Scar uh, Scarface, Michael Corleone, that great character of Jack Nicholson in um, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup in A Few Good Men, and then of course even Anakin Skywalker who becomes, spoiler alert, Darth Vader. <laughs> um, they all pay heavy prices for their stubborn independence. So self-reliance is good normally in adult living, but in the spiritual life it's usually deadly over time and it's normally counterproductive. Now in the New Testament, we actually can read a personal message from Jesus delivered right to a specific church, the one that Nikki had read, uh, that passage, the Laodiceans. And they actually suffer from this tragic flaw. We find it in Revelation chapter 3. And Christ is speaking very severe words to them and really trying to get a hold of their attention before it's too late. So if you remember the last time that I spoke, we looked at another church in Asia Minor, which was Ephesus. And Christ was actually fairly encouraging and trying to bolster them because they were under persecution, pretty heavy persecution, and Rome was sticking its thumb down heavily upon them. So a lot of positive uh, words of uh, trying to bolster their faith. Today, we're looking at a very different church and a very different set of people. And um, he's actually going to challenge them pretty, pretty hardcore um, and then actually try to redirect their eyes back to him. So let's first review the biblical context here. In Revelation chapter 1, this is how the apocalypse of John starts. So I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance 
that are ours in Jesus. I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and today's church, Laodicea. So the author, remember, is John of Patmos. He's writing in exile. He's on a far-flung island off the west coast of Turkey. Now, the church fathers tended to say this is the John that wrote the fourth gospel, um, and that this was a circular letter that went through all these different churches. You can see them there on the west coast in modern-day coastal Turkey. The time period seems to be under uh, the reign of this dreaded emperor Domitian, and this is the last decade of the first century AD, and he's the one that really kind of fans the flames of persecution. He's almost as bad as Nero, maybe not quite, but he's second on the list, and he demanded that his subjects call him Lord and God, and that they venerate him as such. Now, I want to say something about the form that all of these messages to these seven churches tends to take, and you'll see this, and You probably noticed it when we looked at Ephesus. First, there is an opening sentence which just simply describes something about Jesus. And it's always very particular to whatever that church is facing. So first, a vivid description of Jesus. Second, hopefully, a bunch of praises for what they're doing right. Thirdly, usually a few nudges of what they're doing wrong and should be turning around. And then always promises at the end. So first, a picture of Jesus, second, praises, third, rebukes, and then fourth, promises. But there's one church that has no praises that are given to them. It's all bad. It's all stinging rebukes, and this is the church. So Laodicea has the dubious distinction of being a church which received no pat on the backs from Jesus. So let's see what has gone wrong here. Something has seriously gone awry. Let's begin at verse 15 of chapter 3 to get a sense of the problem. Uh, And you're going to see that actually Jesus knows them very well. And some of the language which we're familiar with is universally applicable, but it really spoke to who they were in that setting. So here we go. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold, so I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, neither uh, neither hot nor cold, why is he using these words? So, I'm a history teacher, so I like this sort of thing. Um, Laodicea had no fresh water supply. That's, that's the gist of it. So, um, there was no springs on the site. They had no river that would flow throughout the year. Their only little river dried up constantly. Now, Ten miles north, there are hot springs, 95-degree Fahrenheit mineral waters. People would come to bathe for the medicinal kinds of, uh, you could call it a spa. Um, ten miles to the south is uh, mountains with cold water, snowy mountaintops. The water is refreshing, uh, reviving, and um, it flows into three beautiful streams, and it's nice liquid. But the Laodiceans had nothing. So to try to sort of, through their own resources, through their own resources, to tap into these things, they built a bunch of aqueducts, 
you know, these stone kind of channels, and then the water would run through stone pipes. Um, you know, the Romans were famous for this. So that's nice, but when 10 miles either from the north or the south, when the water flows through, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's, not, it's no good. It's no good. So it's lukewarm. The hot water is no longer hot, the cold water is no longer cold, and then even worse, they didn't have the kind of engineering finesse at that point. Um, they would have mineral deposits which would kind of cake along the stone channels, and then it would be chalky, metallic, and then nobody wanted to drink it. So Laodicea was famous for its disgusting water. <laughs> now, um, there's a simple point then that Jesus seems to be making here. Um, anybody would spit out that lukewarm water. On the physical level, the Laodiceans knew dead well that they didn't have access to life-giving water. And they're trying through their own resources to find a way to a supply. But the results are tepid and putrid water, which is disgusting. Um, on the spiritual level, then, you know, we can draw a direct connection to this. They don't have a channel to a life-giving source. On the spiritual level, this church is judged for its ineffectiveness and the barrenness of its works. And they're clearly not tapping into Jesus, the living water, who said to the woman at the well that he is a water bubbling up into eternal life and that if you drink of him, then you'll never thirst again. But the Laodiceans tend to rely on their own resources. And this is misguided, and the self-reliance is no good, and the results apparently are nauseating to Christ. Um, they're not tapping into the life-giving vine. You know, they're like branches that aren't connected to the vine, and that was the gospel reading that we had. So therefore, the quality of their works, when it's severed from the vine, they're no good. So this, the point's very simple. Don't stay connected to the source, have terrible results. Um, in the next passage, we're going to see the symptoms of this problem. So this is in verse 17 now. So you say, the Laodiceans, you say, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I need nothing. You're not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So then buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you can actually be rich. Wear the white garments and clothe yourselves so that the shame of your nakedness isn't seen. And then get salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Those I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So you say, I am rich. That's the, that's the voice of the Laodiceans. Again, this voice is very self-sufficient, independent, but ultimately very counterproductive. So everybody knew that Laodicea liked to pull itself up by its own bootstraps. Um, there was an earthquake in 60 AD. Everybody was asking Rome for a bunch of money. And lo and behold, the only city that refused the aid of the government was Laodicea. Why? Because they were filthy rich. They didn't want any outside help. Um, they had their own finances, they rebuilt everything from the ground up, stadiums, amphitheaters, gates, fortifications. I have prospered, I need nothing. So they're a major trade, they're in a major trade network, they're the banking center of the region, they have lots of gold, they don't need outside assistance. Now this is okay, I guess, in civic life, but it spilled over into their spiritual lives. 
So they don't see dependence on Jesus as necessary for their public witness. Um, Despite their affluence, they're poor, and they need to get gold refined by fire from Jesus as they walk with him, maybe through testing. Now, the second thing he tells them is, get some white garments from me. Cover yourselves with some white garments. And this is probably a metaphor for get some righteousness and purity back in your lives, because it's not there. Uh, Get this by being united with me. Now, again, this is local language. Everybody at that time, we don't know it, but they knew that Laodicea made the majority of its money from selling wool from black sheep. It was a luxury item, something like cashmere, um, which made them an enormous amount of money. Now, you can make a lot of different color patterns from that, but certainly not white, because the wool won't allow you to make white clothing. So the clothing and the cloth is always dark. It can never be light. In the same way, their deeds apparently were disgusting to Jesus and impure, their filthy rags in his eyes. And they're not clothing themselves in Jesus' righteousness. The third thing that he says is get some eye treatment. Cure this blindness that you have. You know, apparently, um, Laodicea was famous for its ophthalmology. I didn't know that, but I just learned that. They were basically the eye center of the world back then. They had a big, huge school. Everybody went to Laodicea if they had eye problems. Um, Their own resources, again, can really, really take care of the physical problems, but Jesus is being ironic again. He says, okay, you can sell all these ointments and powders and salves, but you need something from me to restore your vision. You're blind. Get your eyes back on me. Your perspective is off. It's short-sighted. You are poor, blind, and naked. That's what he says to them. So in your own resources, you think you're wealthy. You think you have everything that you need. But lo and behold, you're poor, blind, and naked in the matters of the heart and in the inner life. Uh, And then you're ineffective. Your conduct stinks. And uh, get back to the source. Uh, Get back to the source of true water and true the true vine. All right, so how does Jesus now try to get their focus back on him? Let's start in the first verse of this message, which is in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Okay, here's a title of Jesus, a couple titles actually. And we know that they're always matched exactly to the circumstances. They speak to the direct church. So again, every other church had something that Jesus could say to them, which was somewhat nice that he could praise. Not here. There's nothing that Laodicea is bringing that Jesus can commend. So they are failing. (laughs) They are failing miserably. They are not faithful, and their testimony is totally shot. But despite that, Jesus says that he's the amen. He's the amen. So we know this word when you like something in a sermon or if you like something in a song, you call out amen. Apparently, the word literally means in Hebrew um, something like dependable. Like this is a dependable thing, so I'm going to say amen to it. Notice that Jesus is saying he's the amen here. So despite all of that failure, he reminds them that he has firmness of character. He's the one that showers mercies on his people. And the phrase, the God of amen, shows up in the Old Testament. 
So let me give you an example here. Isaiah 65. Whoever invokes a blessing on himself in the land will do so by the God of Amen. The God of Amen. Alohe Amen. Okay, so Jesus wants to actually bless this church. And he reminds them that the only thing that they need to do is open the door when he knocks on it. That's it. Like, that's it. That's the answer to all the problems. They just need to invoke the God of Amen. The other title here is, uh, in that opening verse, is that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, that would have set off bells and whistles to the hearers, because this is how the book of Colossians opens up. And I'll go to my next slide there. So Colossians chapter 1. He is the son of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. In him all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. The beginning and the firstborn of the dead, so that in everything he has supremacy. Now, again, this wouldn't necessarily set off um, alarms in our minds, but at the end of the book of Colossians, at the very end, Paul commands that the Colossians deliver his letter over to the Laodiceans for them to hear this. So the Laodiceans know all of this. They're without any kind of an excuse. They know Jesus is the source of life. He's the source of the new creation. And yet, here they are sliding into this self-sufficiency, stubborn independence, and it's astounding that they have fallen away that far. Uh, Jesus cannot say amen to them. He can only say amen to himself. Um, the, the amazing thing is despite this clear track record of failure, abysmal failure on the part of the Laodiceans, Jesus ends this section, ends this letter with a really open invitation for life-giving fellowship that they desperately need. So let's go to verse 20 now. Here's the famous passage that we've all heard probably numerous times. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So this is a gentle invitation. The Laodiceans don't like the Romans that don't invite themselves. They just shove through the gates and demand entry. This is a gentle invitation. very gentle, um, persuasive way of just inviting them to open the door. This would actually break the streak of self-sufficiency and would hypercharge the Laodiceans back to life. So I stand at the door and knock. I mean, I've heard many, many messages where it's put in the form of a salvation invitation, and that's great. I mean, that's totally on point here. Um, Nothing wrong with that. But it's actually even richer than that in the biblical language. So um, the biblical language is from the book of Song of Solomon, where you have a groom standing and knocking at night at the door, asking for the bride to let him in for them to have intimacy and fellowship. Um, Song of Solomon 5.2. So, I slept, but my heart was awake. Behold, my beloved is knocking. Open the door to me, uh, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is wet with dew. My locks drip with the drops of night. So, here's this metaphor now that Jesus is talking about. He's knocking at the door, and this is the bride 
knocking at the door for the, excuse me, the, the bridegroom knocking at the door for the bride, asking for communion and marital fellowship. And this is the kind of fellowship that the Laodiceans desperately need, and they don't, uh, they don't respond to it so far. They should be his bride, but they don't wear his garments of righteousness. They're not on friendly terms with him anymore. There's a really beautiful way that the book of Revelation, near the very end, weaves this all together. So Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linens, clean and white, uh, bright and clean, he has given her to wear. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words, the amen, of God. So Jesus is saying, open the door. To me, when I knock, I will come in and eat and feast with you. And once the door is open, we can have a wedding feast. And this is a banquet in this passage, the wedding banquet of the Messiah, where the bridegroom rejoices in the love that he has for his beloved. So if Laodicea will respond to Christ's knocking, he promises he will come in and he will draw close to them and they will get his love and his purity, not their own, that they're trying to manufacture. And they will have the closest of relationships. Jesus even says these are true words, as if he needed to say that. He's Jesus, but like, amen to this. I, 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 I amen my own words. So the point is very clear. Fellowship with Jesus is the antidote to all the problems that the Laodiceans have created for themselves by their stubborn self-sufficiency and their independence. All they have to do is just be humble and extend hospitality and open their hearts to his presence. The last verse now, verse 21. Um, to the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on the throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this promise ends on a really, really high note, despite all of the kind of bleak language that came before. So I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. That's what Jesus says. And this is definitely alluding back to a very famous passage in the book of Daniel. And we actually looked at this briefly when we went over the letter to the Ephesians, but I'll just summarize. The Son of Man is invited to come in front of the Ancient of Days on his throne and to share the throne with him. That's the language right there. It's Daniel 7, and it's picked up again in this last chapter. So the final chapter of, we're going to close with this now, the final chapter of the book of Revelation in chapter 22 says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river was a tree of life, bearing crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city." and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, 
For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is how he finishes, how Jesus finishes this tough talk. He says, if you conquer by staying close with me, by staying close to me as the source, then you're going to enjoy the river flowing with the water of life, crystal clear, pure, not like your disgusting water. Uh, You will be in the restored Garden of Eden where there's a tree of life bearing fruit and you can partake of it. You're not going to be disconnected from the vine anymore. Uh, Now, both the water of life and the tree of life come right out of the throne of God and of Christ And that's where they're going to be seated if they stay close to Jesus. Remember, this is not about them trying to muster up more effort or even more enthusiasm. It's just simply them staying close to Jesus. That's it. Nothing on their part, just staying connected. So these incredible gifts are offered to the Laodiceans. They'll have a vision of Jesus directly. The fellowship will be so close that his name will be on their foreheads. And they only have to respond to the gentle knocking and then open the door. That's all they have to do. Okay, in closing now, let's think about this. What do we learn from this stinging rebuke of the Laodiceans? So the temptation to rely on ourselves is something that I'm sure nearly everybody in this room faces. Not particularly necessarily in our uh, day-to-day lives, but in our spiritual lives. The temptation to try to make it all about our own effort. Uh, We rely on our own resources. um, We try to get by on on our own resources. And over time, we see that it's basically ineffective. And um, it doesn't get the good deeds. The results are tepid. As far as the church is concerned, you can try to adopt whatever strategy you want. But if you're not fixed on Christ, if the people aren't in fellowship with Christ, you can adopt whatever strategy you want. It won't have long-term results. So we need personal fellowship with Jesus. Otherwise, it's lukewarmness. So here's the tough part for us now. Um, We each need to examine where we fall short. Are we listening to the Word of God on a regular basis, personally and in the community? It's very obvious, but are we doing this? Do we pray for his strength every day? The tough one, are we resting in his righteousness and listening to his spirit as he guides us? Are we even acknowledging his presence at all? Or, sometimes like me, are we just coasting by on our habits and our patterns? It might be well-intentioned, but it's cut off from the source, and it leads to nothing that has power or vitality. If you're like me, you're probably more of a Laodicean than you actually want to admit to anybody. Um, The solution to the problem is the same one that Jesus gives to this troubled church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Is there any part of our lives, of your life, of my life, where we sense him knocking, asking for greater hospitality and fellowship and for closer communion, but we're not answering the door. Um, 
And I just want to wrap up by tying this into basically almost everything that Rich Edder has been preaching about, which is that we have to listen, not just to each other, but carry it over into our lives with God. We have to try to be sensitive if God is actually guiding us in our daily events. Is there a voice, still small voice, telling us to do something, not to do something? Um, you know, are we praying together as spouses, as families, as a church, and in our own lives. These are the very tangible ways, the very simple and concrete ways that we can open the door. Um, And Jesus is saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open it, I will eat with you uh, and you with me, and we will share in this uh, fellowship together.